Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Gaza. Yes. Uh, so, uh, without recapping too much what we covered uh, in last night's Gaza update, uh, the Israeli operation at uh, Shifa Hospital, at Shifa Hospital in Gaza, has continued continued through the day on Thursday. They keep releasing piecemeal these little tidbits of things that they say they've discovered at the hospital. None of it has been terribly compelling in the context of there having been a massive Hamas underground command complex beneath this facility. Uh, they've, they've said that they discovered what they called an operational tunnel shaft. Uh, they've discovered a truck with some guns inside. They've discovered some other guns in various rooms of the hospital. And all of this, of course, is according to the IDF itself and the videos and the staged photo ops that it's uh, held with media outlets. So I don't want to, you know, say that this is all real. It could very easily, some of this stuff could very easily have been brought in for effect. But they do claim they've shown videos of, you know, laptops and other things that could conceivably be, have been used by Hamas fighters, I guess, or other militants in the hospital. They still, and this is not just me saying this, the Jerusalem Post, which is, a pretty, you know, uh, has a pretty uh, strong editorial bias, let's say, on this story. Has, uh, you know, wrote, wrote an article or published an article yesterday, I think, about how underwhelming the Israeli claims have been. The New York Times on Thursday uh, published uh, an update saying that the, the Israelis still have not proven the existence of this supposed command and control center that they say is under there. The IDF is arguing that it's taking them a while, I guess, because of potential traps or, you know, some risk to the soldiers. They're taking their time uh, kind of uh, searching the facility and it'll take a while before they've fully done that. They're also suggesting that Hamas somehow concealed or covered up or scrubbed out evidence uh, of this command and control facility. I'm not quite sure how that would work, given uh, that all the mock-ups that we saw before uh, the Gaza operation began and, and before certainly this operation at Shifa Hospital began, suggested just this huge underground complex, you know, like a, an office building, essentially, dug under the hospital. And, and uh, you know, it would be hard to cover that up. Let's uh, Let's leave it at that. Meanwhile, while this is all going on, there are Hundreds of patients in the hospital, thousands of people sheltering there, all trapped without food, water, electricity. So, you know, something's got to give here in terms of uh, the humanitarian situation. It's sort of a microcosm of the situation in Gaza writ large. There were, uh, again, this kind of builds on, on something we talked about last night. Um, the Israelis have reportedly started dropping leaflets on eastern neighborhoods in Khan Yunus, which is the city, uh, the, the main city of southern Gaza, telling people to evacuate because they're coming, I guess, to southern Gaza, which I uh, said was probably going to happen uh, last night. And, you know, again, like we talked about previously, the question is, where are these people supposed to go? You've herded them all into southern Gaza. 
you know, hundreds of thousands of them from northern Gaza. And now you're telling them to leave uh, where they are in southern Gaza. There's no place else for them to go. So uh, it doesn't uh, it's unclear what these leaflets are uh, supposed to do or where people are supposed to go. But clearly they indicate uh, if we assume they're legitimate and I don't see any reason not to, then they indicate uh, that the Israelis are coming to southern Gaza, that they are not going to stop with Gaza City, uh, having now thoroughly destroyed it. Uh, they're not content to stop there. And in their stated war aim of excising Hamas can't allow them to stop in northern Gaza. So they will be coming uh, to southern Gaza at some time. There's nothing really else to say about the humanitarian situation. I will say that the telecom situation uh, has gotten worse. Um, the major telecom providers, Paltel and Jawal, took their network offline on Thursday um, because of lack of fuel and the battery backups that they'd been operating on uh, ran out. And so, you know, they're, they're offline. It's, it's mostly a blackout. In this case, I'm not sure uh, there's going to be any recovery from that. And that's only going to make it harder to kind of track uh, what's going on. It will also make it harder to distribute what humanitarian goods are coming into Gaza uh, and to deal with just basic things like sending out ambulances after Israeli airstrikes or any, any of that sort of thing. Trying to maintain some semblance of a rescue and recovery operation is going to be complicated by this as well. Uh, again, this seems like a, a permanent thing at this point. It's not like it, the switch has been turned off and can be turned back on uh, without some some movement to to support telecom network outside of what was already there and is no longer operative. I'm not sure what the alternative is. I don't have anything else to say about a hostage deal. That's still you know there's still reports that this is imminent, uh, and yet you know they've been reports that that it's imminent for couple of weeks now and it hasn't happened uh still no indication that it's uh gonna happen uh, at this point um yeah i think that's that's all i have but if you have uh, any specific questions we can discuss is there been any international response or is everyone just watching uh no i mean not certainly over the last 24 hours nothing major there were a handful of pieces i think somebody uh sent out the the media bat signal in Washington uh, because there were a handful of pieces on Thursday about the Biden administration getting frustrated with the Israeli government that they don't feel they're being listened to and the Israeli government doesn't uh, isn't taking advice on minimizing civilian casualties and they don't they can't get on the same page about what's going to happen to Gaza when this is all over and I you know this is ass covering I think on the part of the Biden administration and it's it's unclear you know, it, I, I'm sure there are frustrations, but it hasn't manifested in any meaningful way. And and those frustrations are about things that are only going to get the, the divergence is only going to get greater the longer this goes on. The civilian casualties are going to continue to mount. Uh, the disagreements about what ha what should happen to Gaza at the end of this are going to continue to uh, kind of you know widen that that gap between where the U.S. is and where the Israeli government is. A and yet, you know, there's no reason to think that that's going to manifest in any kind of policy change and approach uh, from the Biden administration or anything other than maybe a little bit sharper rhetoric, uh, which we've already seen to some degree and has you know made no difference. Let's talk about the U.S. airstrikes in Syria. Yes. Uh, so the U.S. conducted another round of anti-militia airstrikes in Syria on Sunday. There were two targets uh, in Mayadeen and Al-Bukamal, 
both of them in eastern Syria, uh, both of them used apparently by these uh, Iranian-supported militias that operate in Syria and Iraq and have been taking pot shots at U.S. facilities or facilities housing U.S. personnel in Syria and Iraq for uh, um, about a month now. So they started on uh, October 17th with the incident at Al-Afi Hospital in Gaza. Uh, that was when these things really started off. And so it's been about a month. There have been dozens of, of those attacks, no casualties except for one person who had a contractor had a heart attack at a base in Iraq during what was uh, turned out to be a false alarm. Uh, there have been some, some people wounded or injured, uh, some traumatic brain injuries, concussions, i.e. concussions, uh, but, but nothing, you know, no, no further fatalities apart from that, that one person. Uh, the U.S. strikes have killed uh, a, a handful of people now. The, the, this is, I think this is, the, I think the fourth time, the fourth round that the U.S. Uh, undertook of airstrikes. This one killed at least eight people, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. It was immediately followed by a flurry of attacks against U.S. forces in Syria. Again, these kind of uh, pinprick attacks against uh, facilities where U.S. forces are housed, uh, suggesting that there was no deterrent effect, as there has been with none of the other ones. Um, so, you know, we'll just continue, I guess, playing this back and forth uh, until somebody does something that, that causes a serious escalation. Thanks, Derek. Uh, could you give us an update on Sudan? Yeah, so there've been there's been some fighting uh, continuing between the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces. Uh, as I think we noted last week, the RSF is uh, largely at this point in control of the entire Darfur region. Uh, there have been multiple allegations of major casualty events involving the non-Arab communities in that region, as the RSF and its uh, Arab tribal auxiliaries have have rolled through. Uh, there was a new one uh, leveled over the weekend by the UN and the Sudanese Doctors Union, which said that uh, the RSF and its uh, its pals killed over 800 people uh, earlier this month in one attack uh, on a town in West Darfur called, called Ardamata. So, you know, it's continued grim situation there there was also uh renewed fighting or i guess you know ongoing fighting really in uh the capital region uh which has been other than darfur been more even more than darfur kind of the epicenter uh, of this conflict is these two uh the military and the rapid support forces have kind of you know fought, kind of slapped back and forth at each other in this case the shambat bridge which is a fairly major uh artery which connects the uh, city of omdurman uh, to the city of Khartoum North or Bahri, depending on uh, what you like to call it, uh, across the Nile River was destroyed. Uh, it was uh, uh, shelled or uh, blown up somehow. And the suspicion is that this was uh, an attack by the Sudanese military because the RSF has in the past used that bridge as a supply route. So, uh, you know, that's that's probably the case. Again, fighting is sort of continuing there. Uh, outside of Khartoum, it's been mostly the RSF advancing in Darfur and into the south. It's kind of rolled all the way up pretty close, disturbingly close, in fact, to the South Sudanese border, uh, as I think we've also talked about. Uh, the military remains uh, in control of Port Sudan, uh, which is, uh, you know, the, the major uh, commercial center outside of Khartoum. Uh, and the place where one would conceivably bring humanitarian aid in, for example, and if that were uh, an option at this point. So you, the country is kind of bisected. Uh, there's been some talk of maybe another 
partition like the one that created South Sudan many years ago. Uh, I don't think anybody's there yet, and I don't think either the military or the RSF has the capacity at this point to govern the regions that they control. I mean, the military is sort of the de facto government, and there's no evidence that they really uh, have any capability in that regard. Certainly the RSF, uh, when they're not slaughtering people uh, has shown no capacity to govern the areas under its control. So it's a, it's a, in some ways a stalemate around the capital uh, elsewhere. There has been, uh, there have been these, you know, very grim seeming attacks uh, by the RSF and, and that's been the main development. Thanks, Derek. Uh, why don't we talk about the rebel offensive in Myanmar? Yes, uh, that's continued to advance. We, we talked about this last week, but uh, it's expanded still further. Uh, we know that there's been uh, the, uh, the advance by the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance and the Tang National Liberation Army, two members of what's known as the Brotherhood Alliance or the Three Brotherhood Alliance uh, Rebel Coalition uh, that began on October 27th. It's now being called the 1027 Offensive. Uh, in Shan State, where they've seized a number of outposts, a couple of towns along the Chinese border. Uh, the third member of the Brotherhood Alliance, the Arakan Army, has gotten into the game just in the past week or so. They've been attacking police outposts in Rakhine State. Or Rakhine State. They've taken a number of places. They've forced a curfew. They forced the, the authorities to impose a curfew in Sitwe, which is the capital uh, of Rakhine State. Uh, there's also been reports of fighting in Chin State, which is also uh, like Rakhine in western Myanmar and um, it, just north of Rakhine. The Chin, I know the Chin National Rebel Force. I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not entirely clear whether they're acting alone or this is in concert with the Arakan Army, which also does have uh, presence in Chin State and has carried out some, you know, activity in Chin State over the years. That fighting has left rebels in control of at least one border checkpoint into India. It's driven thousands of people, I, I think around 5,000 was the last I saw, into India to flee the fighting. And a number of them, Myanmar soldiers, uh, border, border guards, etc., cetera, uh, kind of fleeing the rebel advance. Some number of those uh, displaced persons have re reportedly, and this was just reported on Thursday, so I don't have full details of it. Uh, but have reportedly moved back into Myanmar. So uh, the situation may be calming down, but it's calmed down with the rebels in uh, control of at least part of the border. The UN estimated that uh, since the, the 1027 offensive began and other rebel groups have sort of picked up on it and, and uh, engaged in their own uh, campaigns against the, the Myanmar military and the junta, uh, that about 200,000 people have been displaced uh, in the fighting which brings the total number of people displaced within Myanmar by, you know, uh, constant, uh, it's been, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up on three years since the, the military retook power and, uh, launched just an unending series of, of civil conflicts. Uh, that's now, uh, at 2 million or more, uh, internally displaced. So, uh, again, a, a fairly dire situation. Some of this is uh, harder to track because the, there hasn't been a lot of media attention on it. And uh, they, these, are these attacks, these rebel offensives are taking place in some fairly remote areas. So, uh, you know, it's hard to get hard information, but things do seem to be going definitely uh, in a, a direction that I think the junta would prefer uh, they not be going into. The, the, the tide seems to be on the rebel side at this point.
Uh, speaking of rebels, uh, could you update us on what's going on in Mali? Yes, uh, that's a new development as well. Uh, people may be familiar with, uh, we've talked about this, the coordination of Azawad movements, which is a rebel coalition that stretches all the way back to the 2012 Northern Mali uprising. It's predominantly Tuareg, although there are also some Arab factions within it. They've been engaged in fighting with the, the Malian military for uh several days now they actually you know announced a couple of months ago uh, that they were restarting their uh, rebellion effectively the fighting has focused on the kidal region and and specifically the town of kidal which is a strategic uh, northern town that has been a rebel stronghold going again all the way back to that 2012 uprising there's been a vacuum created in that region as the UN uh, has been withdrawing its peacekeepers, and they finally completed that a couple of weeks ago at the behest of the Malian junta. And there's been this back and forth about who's going to take over the outposts that the UN is abandoning. Is it going to be the military? Is it going to be the rebels? And the military moved in. They moved on the last of these outposts in Kidal uh, over the weekend, and that sparked uh, a running battle for a couple of days the junta now says it is in control of kidal this is uh, fairly momentous it's the first time that the malian government any malian government has had direct control in uh, over the town of kidal really since the 2012 uprising there have been a series of kind of uh, it's been sort of controlled by proxy ever since then i mean the uprising uh, was settled for a time at least in, in 2013, 2014, 2015. But the, it's been a very tenuous sort of settlement in terms of, you know, actual uh, hard political control over Kidal. And so now that seems to have changed. Uh, it's presumably a setback for the, the rebels. I don't know what their disposition is at this point, and I don't think they've uh, even commented on losing, the, losing Kidal yet. But uh, this is certainly a, a situation that continues to be uh, fairly combustible and and it's one that you know we haven't said anything here about i haven't said anything here about the the jihadist groups that are roaming all across mali but they're certainly still there and still functioning uh still thriving in many respects as the junta battles these rebels and and shows no real capacity for taking on the uh the problem of jihadist violence i should say our friends in the wagner group or whatever remains of the Wagner group reportedly participated in this attack on Kedal or this, this battle in Kedal. Uh, so, you know, good for those guys, I guess, for uh, keeping on, keeping on. Yeah. You know, good for them moving on past tragedy. Uh, speaking yeah, of the Wagner group, uh, let's talk a bit about Ukraine and uh, the Ukrainian army appears to have crossed the uh, Dnipro river. Yes. Uh, so for a couple of weeks now, at least there have been these rumors, the, the Russian, like war bloggers and war monitors have commented on this. There's been, you know, chatter about it in, in think tanks. I know the uh, Institute for the Study of War, which is a favorite among the pro-Ukraine crowd, has, has been saying this, uh, that the Ukrainians have established a couple of footholds uh, on the eastern bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson, which is, you know, the, in southern uh, Ukraine. It's the, the Dnipro is, is the river that separates the Russian and Ukrainian lines in that province. The Russians pulled back uh, months ago, pulled pulled out of most of Kherson across the river because they, they felt their defensive positions uh, in the rest of Kherson were, were no longer tenable. Uh, so they've been using the river as sort of the geographic front line. Well, uh, so a confirmation of sorts came earlier this week from Ukrainian President 
Volodymyr Zelensky's chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, uh, who was giving a think tank speech uh, in Washington and said that uh, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian military had, he said, gained a foothold uh, on the eastern bank of the Dnipro River. Uh, the Wall Street Journal later did some some reporting on this and described it as uh, three toeholds, so maybe not quite. I think you need five toeholds to have a foothold, right? That, that makes sense. So not quite a foothold, maybe. And it also described this as precarious. So I don't think it's, uh, I don't think they're at the point where they can start moving mass numbers of troops and, and material across the river without being shelled or, uh, you know, otherwise uh, pulverized by the Russians. So this isn't something that can sustain a serious offensive yet. Now that said, if it becomes that if they're able to widen one of these toeholds into a genuine presence on that side of the river it could change some things about uh, the war in ukraine because it would give the ukrainians a new front in a place where we don't really know how deep russian defenses go the russians have focused most of their time and attention on eastern Ukraine, as has the as have the Ukrainians uh, in Zaporizhia, around Bakhmut, around Avdivka, the places that we've been, places that we've been talking about uh, it recently. Kherson, you know, who knows how, how well dug in they are there. If, if there is a vulnerability and the Ukrainians can exploit it, they could move south pretty quickly and potentially even uh, make a threat toward Crimea. Uh, if not to enter Crimea and like actually start taking territory, then at least to sort of threaten maybe its water supply, which is one one thing that's vulnerable. Um, but you know, there's there's some things that the Ukrainian military could do if this becomes a major foothold to draw the Russians out of eastern Ukraine and force them to to distribute uh, forces in a different direction. So it it could be a a, a significant development. But I think uh, I don't think we're there yet. This is something that. Uh, would have to develop a little bit more before it became a, a serious story. So let's move on to a story that that's kind of a big deal, even though it hasn't gotten much play because no one cares about Ukraine and the United States anymore. But this is the uh, Nord Stream bombing. So yeah, Derek, maybe remind people past. what happened. Blast from the past. Uh, so yeah, I mean, last year people people probably remember somebody, uh, some enterprising soul blew up the Nord Stream gas pipelines, which connected Russia to Germany directly under the Baltic Sea, brought Russian natural gas. Now, the Russians had already mostly shut these things down. They weren't supplying uh, gas because you know of the bad blood over the Ukraine war. Nevertheless, this was a pretty major development. These were pretty you know, substantial pieces of infrastructure, and there's been a great deal of speculation. A lot of it in the West focused on the bizarre notion that uh, Russia would bomb its own pipelines, uh, but elsewhere there's been speculation about: Did the U.S. do this? Did you know somebody in NATO, somebody else in NATO, do it? Did the Ukrainians do it? Well, there is a new person, I guess. To, there's a face to put on this uh, operation now. The, uh, uh, at least the Washington Post reported, and I think this was in more than one outlet. Uh, they reported this week that a Ukrainian special forces colonel named Roman Chervinsky. Uh, was the operational coordinator, operational head uh, of the Nord Stream mission to, you know, the mission to blow these things up. It's still, I mean, this is still very speculative. There's no indication yet as to who, how far up the chain of command this went. There's Chervinsky was not uh, apparently the planner. Uh, so there must have been people uh, above him in the chain of command who were 
involved in plotting this out and, and ordering him to to carry it out, assuming that he's not just a patsy here and he was actually he actually was the guy who was uh, responsible for this all there's a lot of assumptions baked into the story but it is interesting uh it's interesting that he was outed uh i've seen people speculate that maybe he was outed by his own government that there is a lot of tension behind the scenes between Zelensky and his top general valery zeluzhny and this may have been an attempt by Zelensky's office to kind of pin the the Nord Stream operation on zeluzhny by uh you know Chervinsky up the chain of command all the way to uh, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian military. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But they they do seem to not be getting along. Uh, Zeluzhny, you may recall, last month, I think late last month, started talking about uh, openly about the fact that the war is a stalemate. And Zelensky very quickly kind of laid into him publicly over this. And uh, so they, they don't seem to be getting along very well. I can't say that that's the reason why all of a sudden we now have a prime suspect in the bombing, but uh, it is something to consider. Wild. We should do an episode on Zelensky. His trajectory has been quite um, interesting and kind of reveals the vagaries of associating with the American empire if you're not of a direct national interest. Derek, let's speak about the Polish opposition, which looks close to forming a government. Yes. Um, people may recall that in last month's uh, parliamentary election, a three-party or three-alliance coalition led by the former Polish prime minister and also former, I think, European Council president Donald Tusk won a parliamentary majority. They On Friday, those three parties or three coalitions signed a governing agreement uh, that is, you know, the basically says they are ready to take power. Uh, they're ready to make Tusk the prime minister and, and move on. The problem with that is that earlier this week, uh, the president of, of Poland, uh, Andrzej Duda, gave the ruling Law and Justice Party uh, the mandate to form a government. This is partly because Law and Justice came out of that election as the largest single party. They have no mathematical path to a, a parliamentary majority, but they are the largest single parliament. And there is sort of a, a political norm that you give that party uh, the first crack at, at forming a government. Now, oftentimes, if there's no chance of, of them forming a coalition, uh, a party in that position will, uh, you know, kind of take the mandate and then give it right back or something like that. But law and justice has not done that. They have up to four weeks to play around and attempt to form a government. They are unlikely to do so, as I say. Uh, on Monday, the same, the Polish same met for its first session and elected a, a member of Tusk's coalition as speaker. Uh, Marshal, I believe, is the actual term uh, in that case. And, and that just shows, again, that these guys do have a, a working parliamentary majority. So, you know, the, there is uh, no chance for law and justice to form a government. Now, what a lot of people are speculating, or at least some people are kind of supporters of Tusk, I guess, and of the opposition, uh, are are wondering is if law and justice is going to use this four-week period not to try to form a government, not in that futile effort, but to sort of try to embed uh, party loyalists in senior government positions, which is possible. Uh, that is one thing to be, I guess, concerned about if you're uh, of the pro, I don't even want to, what to call them, pro-centrist 
technocrats. Uh, they're really that's really what the <laughs> we love our technocrats, folks. Uh, yeah. So you know, if you're of the pro neoliberal centrist uh, bent. Uh, then you would certainly be, I think, concerned about the possibility that law and justice or just anti far right law and justice is pretty right wing. I shouldn't uh, shouldn't generalize, uh, but there <laughs> we, is that. We don't generalize that on will, this podcast <laughs> uh, that they will put uh, that they will put party loyalists in in these senior positions and try to mess up the uh, the forthcoming government. You hate to see it. Um, let's talk about the only place where socialism lives, and that, of course, is Spain. Yeah, true socialism in the form of the center-left Socialist Workers' Party uh, in Spain. Uh, Pedro Sanchez, the uh, incumbent prime minister who is right now serving in a, a caretaker capacity because they they still haven't formed a government after July's election, finally on Thursday uh, won conf- parliamentary confirmation for his government, which is a coalition between his Workers' Party and... Uh, the leftist Sumar coalition. Uh, there are a number of smaller parties that gave support, including and most controversially two Catalan secessionist parties, both of whom kind of wrung concessions out of Sanchez to in, in return for their support uh, that include an amnesty for the 2017 uh, Catalan secession referendum that was deemed illegal by the Spanish government. A number of Catalan uh, separatist leaders had to go in, essentially into self-exile to avoid prosecution. Uh, some of them were prosecuted. So he's 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 agreed to uh, a general amnesty related to that event. And that has proven to be uh, pretty unpopular. It's caused some protests and uh, fairly sizable ones organized by the, the conservative People's Party. Uh, nevertheless, this is sort of the uh, the end of the line, and Sanchez is now in power uh, for presumably another term, unless there's some you know huge uh, political earthquake that uh, that uh, is obviously unforeseeable. Let's talk about the greatest country on earth, and that, of course, is the United Kingdom, where there has been a cabinet reshuffle, as well as the court there has struck down a refugee plan. And uh, Suella Braverman is out. Yes, our friend Suella Braverman, the batshit home secretary, who has spent her time recently accusing uh, or calling on accusing accusing British police, including accusing the Metropolitan Police of being pro Hamas because they wouldn't shut down uh, a planned uh, peace rally in London. Uh, just a complete basket case. There's a lot of speculation that she has uh, just done this incredibly hard right jag because she's trying to position herself for the inevitable moment when Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's uh, leadership of the Conservative Party uh, implodes, as it may, you know, do. Uh, relatively soon who knows uh anyway he finally fired her on monday which he does position her as a potential successor ironically uh but finally got rid of her after this you know spat with the police it was just just couldn't keep her on anymore uh he's replaced her with his uh, now former foreign secretary james cleverly and brought uh, to replace cleverly as foreign secretary, brought in none other than dun, 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 prime minister <laughs> he's David back, Cameron. Baby. <laughs> Now, David Cameron will be familiar to you for having uh, completed one of the most awesome political own goals of all time by calling the Brexit referendum, Brexit, and baby, <laughs> campaigning for the Remain side and then losing. And he resigned after that 
in 2016 as prime minister, uh, presumably in disgrace, although now he's got a chance to disgrace himself all over again uh, as foreign secretary. So that's that's some exciting news about uh, somebody I think we had had lost touch with. But but he's back and and we're all looking forward to great things. We're more and more. You're hearing people say this. Uh, so what happened with the refugee law? Yes, this is the other big blow that Sunak has taken uh, this week. The UK government has been uh, pursuing this uh, madcap scheme to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda while they await the, their uh, rulings on their asylum cases. Uh, it's raised all sorts of uh, opposition from civil society groups, humanitarian uh, human rights organizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because uh, it, it relies on uh, the a ruling that Rwanda is a safe third con- third party country to which these people can be deported uh, while they await the the rulings on their asylum cases. The U- UK Supreme Court on Wednesday uh, rejected that argument. Uh, it said that there is no. Uh, there's no way you can characterize Rwanda as a safe third party uh, or third third party haven because primarily uh, there's nothing in the agreement that the UK government has with Rwanda that doesn't prevent the Rwanda government from then uh, deporting these people again back to their home countries, which is would violate the principle of non-refoulement under international law and under UK law. It should be said uh, that you you cannot send a refugee and asylum seeker back to their home country where they could face uh, grave peril, certainly not until you've determined whether or not they can actually should actually legally be considered uh, refugees or their asylum cases should be upheld. So the court ruled that there's not, you know, it, both according to uh, international law and it cited the European uh, human rights law, which is something the UK is still party to despite the nativist fringe in the UK desperately wanting to get out of that. It also cited UK law, though, so it's not uh, it's not just a matter of the the UK withdrawing from from European human rights laws to say that that this is this is illegal. You can't do it. So Sunak, uh, who again is trying to appease this unhinged nativist base in the Conservative Party, it announced that he's got uh, after the ruling that he's got multiple you know options here, multiple avenues that he's going to pursue to try to revive this scheme uh, so that he can still send these people to Rwanda legally. Uh, it's it's unclear whether any of them have any chance of succeeding. Uh, the The commentary that I have seen suggests uh, it's pretty slim, but uh, I suppose we will see. Speaking of David Cameron, uh, just in terms of a blast from the past, we haven't talked about the new Cold War in a while. But it is back with a vengeance. So, Derek, uh, how did President Joseph Robinette Biden do uh, upon meeting Xi Jinping in uh, China? He seems to have yeah, been doing back, great. It's back in a nice way. They had a nice talk. Um, they, uh, yeah, this was the, their fine, you know, their long-awaited meeting, which has been pegged to take place on the sidelines of this, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which is taking place this week in San Francisco. There have been you know, hours of negotiations between U.S. and Chinese officials and, you know, at the technical level and at the the ministerial level to try and iron this out. They had choreographed it, I think, down to the most minute details. Uh, so there was really no uh, off script or surprising uh, result here. They spent reportedly about four hours talking to each other. The two of them get along pretty well when Biden was vice president and, and she was uh 
also in a similar position in the Chinese government. They, they got to know each other pretty well, apparently, and got to be fairly friendly. And Biden made some, uh, I think he, he wished Xi's wife a happy birthday or, or, and, and she, uh, made a joke about having forgotten that it was her birthday and he had to run out and buy her present. So they had like these little personal moments. It was nice. Uh, they spent about four hours talking. They came out with agreements on the two things that, that Biden wanted, uh, which were the resumption of regular bilateral military to military communications. Uh, the Chinese had broken those off last year after Nancy Pelosi's big magical trip to Taiwan. And uh, they got an agreement to take some unspecified, at least as far as I know, I don't know, maybe it was specified and it hasn't been reported, uh, some unspecified joint action against companies that are involved in producing and trafficking fentanyl. Uh, so those are the two things Biden wanted. I have not seen any reporting on what, if anything, uh, she got out of it, but she, certainly there, you know, he had some things uh, he wanted to talk about in terms of U.S. export controls and other kinds of economic penalties. Uh, they undoubtedly discussed Taiwan. They undoubtedly discussed the Middle East. But, uh, you know, probably this certainly didn't come to any agreement on Taiwan. And I don't even know what they would have uh, been able to do at this point about uh, the Middle East. So uh, the two main takeaways seem to have been the military communications and the, the fentanyl thing. Uh, and also, apparently, she has now said that China may send some more uh, pandas to the United States, which was something that was in doubt. Uh, all the, the zoos have been forced to send their pandas or ordered to send their pandas back to China, but we may get, be getting some more. Uh, so that's nice. That's good. That's a nice place to end. Derek, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Hey,